This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. This is the season finale, folks. This is the last one. Uh, and we've, we've gone above and beyond, quite frankly, with our season finale. We have with us in studio uh, the amazing Amma Marfo. She is a speaker and consultant at Fun Enterprises. We're going to be talking about all things creativity today. And I am personally excited about that because I think everything we've done on the show in season one and season two uh, has really been about creativity. We've just never actually talked about it. We just talk about the outputs of creativity. And so I'm really excited to bring in Ama today uh, to talk to us about what it actually means to be creative and hopefully convince me that I am creative, even though <laughs> I don't think I am. So uh, let's jump right into it. Ama Marfos, thank you so much for not only coming on the hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, but coming to us in person in Philly. I get to talk in front of a mic. I'm wearing real clothes. Most of the time when I do this, I'm in pajamas. So <laughs> doing it in like a very professional way is it's different. I love it. There's a heightened sense of officialness. There right? really like, is. Yeah. Now to the point about a season finale, as a TV watcher, am I provi- am I required to provide a cliffhanger? Yes. I feel like that's part of it, yeah. right? Yeah, we are going to cut off your audio at the very end, right before your social shout out. So you'll say, I would like to give a social shout out to, and then we'll just cut the season just there. Just go to the black. You'll have to wait till the next season to find out who it is. Just fade to black, <laughs> no resolution, like the Sopranos. I love it. I love it. Uh, so look, I- I've listened to you speak. You're a phenomenal public speaker. Thank you. And, and very inspiring. And I know you get around the country to, to many different institutions and conferences, but there will be people listening to this show who, who have not had the pleasure of hearing you speak. So uh, for those of us who, who don't know about you and your work, um, tell us a little bit about what you're up to, what you're all about, and uh, how, you're, how you're spending your, your day-to-day these days. Okay. So... A lot of the work that I do now is based on around 10 years of work on campuses in student activities, student life, student leadership development, a little bit of marketing, communications, and it's really about helping people find the best way that they work. Now, when I first started doing consulting, a lot of that was based around temperament in higher education because I had done a lot of research about introversion and extroversion and thinking about how introverted students and introverted staff can find their place on campus. And then within the last year and a half or so, that's evolved into more of a focus on creativity. Where is it needed on campus? What do you need to be able to cultivate it? And where can it help either students or staff do the work that they want to do best? And I feel like like I said in the intro, we talk to a lot of great guests on this show who, who come in and talk about what I would define as really creative work that they're doing on campus. Mm-hmm. I imagine when you're when you're giving those talks or, or workshops and you're talking to in particular staff, but, but maybe students as well, there are going to be people like me who will be who, who will say to you, I'm just not creative. It's it's not my skill set. Uh, I think there are really great creative people out there. I'm just not one of them. For someone like myself, so is it your opinion that that there is an element of creativity in all of us, and maybe we just don't recognize it, or or is it okay for some people to to they're just not creative? <laughs> 
So I think it's a bit of both. I think there definitely are people for whom creativity is going to be a bit of a stretch. But I do also feel like the majority of us have some version of it in our repertoire, whether we recognize it or not. And one of the interesting things to me is when I was working on my book about creativity, the people that I chose to interview, I asked them how they felt about being creative. And most of them told me they didn't think they were. Interesting. One of these people is an artist and a painter who does murals for a living. He's like, my grandma says I'm creative. I don't really think I am. And I'm like, Tim, people put your work on T-shirts. You can buy it on mugs. Like, yes, it definitely counts. And I wonder a lot about if that's how we define it. And I think that a lot of the time we conflate the idea of being creative with being artistic. So people that I ask who aren't artists, I can't explain it with Tim. But most people, they'll automatically tell me, I can't draw a straight line. Mm-hmm. I can't draw a circle. Guilty. Or can't carry a tune and that type of thing. So it's conflated with this idea of artistry. But I think it's anything you're doing where you're taking inputs and combining them in a way that's unique to to you, that counts as being creative. So mm. if you got yourself dressed and someone complimented you, that was a creative act. If you made yourself dinner from stuff you just had in the kitchen, by the chopped method I like to call it, um, that counts as being creative as well. So thinking about maybe not narrow ideas of creativity, but where are you putting things together with your own spin on it? Mm. That all counts too. Is there an aspect of it... You know, I think there are a lot of people whose personalities do not lend themselves to bragging and and being almost humble to a fault, right? And oh, oh, that's really nice of you, but I I don't really see it that way. Is that a part of it? And do you see that more in higher ed, where we're almost and I know we were talking about it right before we started recording about imposter syndrome, but mm-hmm. where there's this heightened sense of imposter syndrome and just being even if there's demonstrative proof that someone is creative, wanting to to have this default reaction to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not creative. You know, that might be. And I don't know that I had ever put those things together. But I think about people that have definitely done creative things who will then automatically deflect or minimize it and say, oh, well, it was just this or it wasn't that big of a deal. Based on the impact or the output of it, it might be, especially in the case of higher ed, as you're talking about some of those decisions impact students' experiences and the way that they experience their institution, the way that they come to find community within it, find home, and then ultimately create a legacy on that campus. If you used your perspective and your ability to create something for that, absolutely it counts. And yes, you should brag about it because it (laughs) makes a difference to those people. Mm. Is there... Is part of it almost taking a step back and and accepting that it's creative? Like the examples you gave, I thought were interesting when you talk about making making dinner from ingredients that just happen to be in your house. Part of it feels like it, you're you're just going through the motions, right? Like I, I just made dinner, and, sure. and not almost recognizing that. Oh no, I guess that was a creative act. Is there value in in stepping out? And is that a challenge for most people to actually zoom out and and take a look at what they've done to see the creativeness in it? So I think it is. And I I wonder if that's really the case with anybody who is doing something different or something exceptional, right? Because we're living it day to day. We don't see it as anything particularly interesting. But someone then walks up and is like, that's really cool. We don't know if they're going to think it's cool. We're just doing what we have to do to get by. So I think there is something to that, the idea that being able to look at it through somebody else's eyes or have somebody let us know. So a student can say, I was having this issue and what you've put together did help me with what I needed. It solved the problem that it was designed to solve. It made me feel included in a way that I didn't feel included before. Getting that feedback can be helpful. Mm. Of course, it's not what we should be after because most students won't tell us, but it does kind of give a little bit of... um, validation yeah if you need that you mentioned something earlier like you should brag about it yes you should how uh, uh, take me through 
that feels unnatural almost in a way, right? To, to brag about it. How how does someone? How do you convince someone to brag about it without coming across or or portraying themselves as almost right like a little bit egotistical? How, what is that? How do you find that balance? Or should we not be afraid to be perceived as egotistical? Or? Well. I think it's interesting because most people who have the sensibility to worry about it aren't the people that are going to then come off as egotistical mm. because they have the propensity to worry about it. Um, I do a lot of this with women and I actually – so a podcast that I host with a group of friends of mine is called The Imposters and a lot of it comes back to the idea of when you're making things or doing things that are different, you never really feel like it's doing what it's supposed to do. You never feel like you're done or that it's any good once you do finish it. And the idea of being able to say, hey, I finished this thing when someone asks how are you instead of saying fine or nothing really is going on like responding with something you've been working on that being part of the process as well Mm -hmm. Um, I also work with a group online of I think at this point we're at about 425 women on Facebook and it's a community where you get to go and talk to people about something you're working on if you're challenged by something and we have what's called a flaunt it Friday so on Friday we'll ask how are you and you're supposed to respond with something that you've done that week that you're proud of or excited about because it's not a default thing to be able to go about and talk about what you're working on. Most of us are kind of taught to not talk about that, especially women and other groups that are underrepresented. So I like to prompt people to say, today's the day to do it. Mm -hmm. And then over the weekend, when someone asks how you are, instead of saying fine or good or something that helps nobody, answer with that thing that you shared with the group. You've already told somebody, so it might not feel like bragging, and you've had a little bit of practice doing it. I love that. And I feel like the, the thing there is that supportive community, right? Mm-hmm. That safe space to come out and say, I did X this week. I finished this project this week. I tried something this week. Mm-hmm. So that so that I think when you get out of that space, it's almost a little bit more second nature. Yeah, you've tested it out. Yeah. You've said it. You've kind of gotten to hear how it feels. If you didn't really like how it came out, you can adapt based on having done it before. But it is the idea of having that space, whether it's a small group of friends or an online community, you can test those things out. Test the ideas that you're working on out and then kind of plan your course of attack for how you're going to work on that project based on that community. I think that's a really huge part of being able to empower people to be creative. Hey everyone, the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast is part of Connect EDU, a podcast network bringing together brilliant minds in the higher ed space and breaking down silos. You can check it out at connectedu.network where you can find great shows no matter where you work on campus, as well as resources for first-time and long-time podcasters. You can also follow along on Twitter at connectedupod and hashtag connectedu. I was listening to or watching, I should say, one of your videos that you produce and and you had posted to your LinkedIn profile earlier this week, and you mentioned Hamilton in in that segment. I talk about Hamilton a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And in particular, you mentioned the fact that it took Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think it was seven years, to Mm -hmm. create that play. Now, we all effing love that play. It's phenomenal. Seven years well spent. Well spent. Thank you, Lin. Um... And, and we're not all trying to create the next Hamilton, of course, but it, I thought of that just when you were talking about saying, you know, talking about something, you're not done, I'm working on something. And, and it does strike me that a lot of times it, this takes time. Mm-hmm. Doing something creative takes time. Um, why is it important to understand that aspect of creativity? So I think it matters because when you look at something, and we'll use Hamilton for the sake of this example, watching that two and a half hour play, first of all, 
the play itself is very long because it has to cover a lot of information. And yet, if you look at the source material book that it came from, as well as a lot of the songs that came out later in the mixtape, it could have been much longer. So thinking about in order to focus on what you need that thing to do, having the mind and the ability to kind of edit. So say, all right, not every page of the Ron Chernow biography has to be in here and not every single song that I wrote has to fit in here. But it takes time to kind of figure out what makes sense for the story that you're trying to tell. I would also say a lot of times when you're doing something creative, it tends to involve doing something new, which means you have to take time to learn that thing Mm. that you're trying to do and get comfortable with it, help other people be comfortable with it. And the sales piece that goes along with it as well. It's not just you deciding to do it. Most of the time you have to get somebody to trust you to let you do it. And all of those things are going to lengthen the process compared to how you would do it regularly by the normal policies and procedures. So recognizing that all of that has to go into it is really important. And then if you're in the position to get to empower people to be creative, being permissive and supportive of the idea that what they're trying to do will take longer than just doing it the regular way, but trusting them to know that the end result will get the impact that maybe the old version Mm. wouldn't have. So all of that's really tied up in it as well. How do you get yourself to see that? You know, you just said, like, getting someone to understand that the final product will make a bigger impact than than what it is now. Mm-hmm. How do you, and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Hamilton taking seven years and, like, could I, could I devote myself, you know, to, to something where you're going to go through ruts mm-hmm. and, and, and times when it's just not, the ideas aren't flowing. How do you maintain that belief in yourself to, to power through that? So I think there are a couple different parts to that. So one of the benefits of Hamilton coming together the way that it did was that Lin-Manuel Miranda had a group of people that kind of understood what he was working on and he gave them opportunities to contribute to it. So it wasn't just him working alone on this thing for seven years. It was the actors that were involved in it kind of bringing their own voices and their own personalities to it. And the people that were staging it kind of helping him recognize how something needed to be written. Um, And I think about that in comparison to some of the longer form pieces I've written. Not direct comparison. Mine's not as good and practically (laughs) none of it rhymes. But being able to recognize sometimes you need people to come in and help you out with stuff. So I think about for my first book, which took me, well, every book I've written has taken me longer than I thought it would. That's always going to happen. But I also realized at some point that I needed pictures. And while I do identify as creative, I cannot draw. And I understand that about myself. So I had to figure out who could help me convey some of the tougher concepts or concepts that could have been lightened a little bit with an illustration. And a friend of mine who um, is one of my podcast co-hosts is an illustrator. So I had her help. And then I had people that I interviewed that gave me information. So it wasn't just me alone with my computer for 10 months working on this thing. I got to bring in other people and their voices kind of helped lighten it and helped me say, I talked to these people about this. They're in it. It has to be done at some point so they can see themselves in it. And Mm -hmm. it was a little bit of added accountability that kept me moving. Yeah. Is there... I wonder about the flip side of that. Sure. And when to understand to let something go and, and acknowledge that, yes, this, this was a goal. This was a, a you know, something that was in my mind. I had a vision for something and, and how you identify that you're not just in that creative rut, but that is just not, it's just not happening. How do you balance it? And how do you know? I mean, I imagine there's no right answer, but how do you know or, or recognize when it's just not happening? That's a tough question because I think, 
a lot of us don't like to quit on things, right? Like there's sunk cost bias about, well, I've spent all this time. I might as well see it through. And for me, I would say, is the end product that you're putting in place still going to achieve the goal you've set out to achieve? And if it can't, either because the people that you wanted to reach aren't responding to it, or maybe you're in a place where you can't serve that particular goal as well as you could anymore, um, being able to give up on it that way versus I'm tired or versus Mm. I don't feel like it right now. Like being able to stop and take breaks or look at things differently, that's okay. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily the same as just abandoning something altogether. But thinking about based on what I have here and everything that I'm trying to do, can this achieve the goal it's supposed to achieve. If it can't, it is okay to let it go. Mm. Oh, so we are, our agency, E-City, we've been around for close to 20 years now, but we work in a co-working space and there's a real startup culture within mm-hmm. the co-working space, as is common. And, you know, I'll see signs up on the walls and, and you hear people talk about failing fast and hustle and... Uh, and growth hacking and all, all the these buzzy words. all of the buzzy words that I think at the end of the day maybe not fail fast but rather it's just about creativity and and finding new ways to to certain destinations and how to dis- if we're going to use buzzwords how to disrupt an sure. industry or something like that is there do you think that culture and environment can it, it, does it help creativity or is there can there be a, almost a toxic effect from a startup growth hacking hustle hustle environment can that almost derail creativity in a way because i i always think it needs a, a time to breathe in some cases sure so i think it can be a little bit of both i'll say that it helps in the sense that recognizing that things will fail and having that be part of the culture brings in a flexibility that places that don't believe in that don't have. So one of the tenets that I have for um, my essential elements of creativity is flexibility. And the way that I explain that to people is I am extremely prone to getting lost, walking around. Even in the city that I live in and have lived in for six years, I get lost all the time. So recognizing that when I leave the house, if I'm trying to go somewhere, it is likely I will have to turn around and go back. That's just part of the experience. I don't get mad at myself for it. Most of the time I don't decide to just turn around and go home. I just accept that as a possibility and adapt accordingly. And I think a lot of the projects that we're working on and a lot of the problems that we set out to solve could benefit from that type of thinking. Mm -hmm. It is possible too likely that we're going to get it wrong at some point. But accepting that as part of the process and using that as a sign that something needs to be reexamined not that something needs to be abandoned is a really important part of making sure that you keep going with the thing that you're trying. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I think that that type of environment's really, really helpful because it's normal. It is yeah. normal to not get it right the first time. And it encourages people to say, all right, this piece didn't work. What can I look at? What does this mistake mean? And how can I go about this so I don't make the same mistake again? Mm. So in that regard, I think it's helpful. But I will also say that there are parts of it that could possibly be hurtful. And one of the other tenets of creativity that I talk about a lot is heart and the idea that that grow at all costs, growth hacking, keep moving, keep hustling kind of thing runs people over sometimes. So as I talk to people about the ideas that they're going to pursue, I always ask them to think about who does this idea help? 
who could it hurt and how can I pursue this idea in a way that it helps more people than it hurts? Mm. And I think moving quickly keeps you from stopping and asking those questions. So I think about, um, for example, the op-ed that came out in Forbes over the summer about getting rid of libraries and replacing yes. them with Amazon stores. That, that struck is, a chord. <laughs> it, it did. It, you can no longer find that article. It was up for a hot day and a half before Forbes said, we have made a mistake. And they turned around and they took it down. But to me, that's one of those things where someone said, this one small part of the problem could be solved mm -hmm. by this small solution. But the problem's far bigger than that. And the establishment they were trying to take down serves far more purposes than they could have addressed. But because someone said, quick, this doesn't work, what can we do? That speed made them run over all types of people that are served really well by libraries, right. like people that are homeless or housing insecure, like people who don't have the resources to take books out or go buy books or don't want to or don't have space. Um, there was a story that I read a couple of years ago about librarians in the Midwest that were treating people with opioid overdoses. No one in an Amazon store is going to do that. So thinking about all you the probably don't want someone in an right. Amazon. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But librarians have kind of understood that's part of being part mm -hmm. of a community. And that's something that you gain. And those are people that are helped that an Amazon store can and likely would refuse to do. So I think about as you're trying to build that environment of hustling and growing, that can't be at all costs. And that heart element of thinking about creativity slows people down a little bit to think about the people yeah. as well as the thing. I feel like in that way, higher education is perfect for creativity because mm -hmm. You know, in some ways, higher education is radically different than startup culture, most notably in speed. Sure. Um, <laughs> but but it is an industry where so many of the professionals that, that you speak with, that I speak with, they are resource strapped. Uh, there is no Series B funding that's giving us all the budget in the world to yep. execute on our ideas. Very it true. is an environment that, that breeds creativity, but at a pace that I, I would hope would, would allow you to, to take a step back and keep the audience, keep the mission, keep the heart mm -hmm. in, in that idea. And it sounds like you agree with that. Very much so. Yeah. yeah, you will have time to be creative because nothing is moving so fast that you don't have time to think about it. That much I can essentially guarantee you. Um, but I think about the fact that all of those constraints as it's seen, so like having a finite number of staff members and like having a finite amount of money, a lot of people see those as hindrances to being creative. And in fact, I think those are precisely the circumstances that force you to look outside. So no one's coming in with an extra million dollars. What are you going to do with what you have? Or we don't have the money for an extra person this year. How can you get creative and redistribute duties or put more on students in a way that makes sense for their learning and also for their capacity? So using the resources you have to think, what makes sense here, that's actually a really good thing to have. Mm. At the same time, I would also say we have a way of talking about creativity in higher education that values it when something's gone wrong. And I want to talk about valuing it at all times. <laughs> um, thinking about that any possible problem you could encounter, anything that could be improved can benefit from creativity rather than just saying, all right, insert bad thing that's happened. Mm -hmm. Let's get creative. Let's just talk about how we can get creative week to week, year over year in any opportunity to make things better. Yeah. Kind of that if it ain't broke, don't fix it attitude, but, but scrapping that attitude and saying, I don't care if it's, or even maybe redefining what's what broke means. Yes. yes. I Yeah, I think that's hugely important. Um, I talk to people a lot about using the design thinking model as a way to structure creative thinking, especially if you're new at it and aren't really accustomed to coming up with new ideas. 
And one of the steps, the second step in that process is interpretation, where you recognize you have a problem, but rather than rushing to a solution, you stop and learn as much as you can about the problem at hand. And I always tell people to ask, for whom is this a problem and for whom is it not a problem? Because it's pretty unlikely that something that you're going to go in to fix is working for everybody, Mm -hmm. which means there are definitely going to be people that are underserved or poorly served by the solution that you have in place. But there are also going to be people for whom it is working and they're the reason the thing doesn't change. So having as much information as you can before you find solutions, that I think is really important as well. So yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's fair. But for whom is it actually broken and how can their perspective be incorporated into the possible solution? Hey everyone, a quick shout out to the agency that makes this show possible, eCity Interactive. You know, I really do love coming to work every day at eCity and that's not just because everyone shares my love of donuts. Uh, But that's really because I get to collaborate with a talented team working on everything from user experience to content and digital marketing to web design and development and a whole lot more. Our work has earned us an incredible roster of education clients, including the University of Pennsylvania, George Washington University, Petty School, Cornell, Drexel, Rutgers, and many others. So if you're looking to improve your web and digital presence and better communicate your school's story, visit us online at ecityinteractive.com and get in touch. So I think you brought up a really good point about figuring out who is it broken for and how do we include them? And you've talked about heart and interpretation and digging into a problem before we rush to a solution. And I hear you talk about all of that and I think that sounds awesome. And I think the immediate next step is how do we make time for that? Because because that is something you have to absorb it and and dig deep into it and give it your your mental capacity. And for so many of us who are resource constrained, who who do have a really challenging day-to-day schedule mm-hmm. and and tasks that have to get done, how how can you almost not I don't want to say force yourself, but but how do you kind of get yourself to take a step back and and give yourself the time to think about those problems? So it's interesting because I feel like the smart ass of me always wants to say, do you have time to solve it on the back end if you don't address it? Because most of the time people are like, well, we don't have time to look at it this way. I was like, all right, let's say that we're true. At some point, you're going to have mm-hmm. to address it. How big does that problem or challenge or lack of good service have to be before you decide to address it. It's only going to get bigger if you don't touch it. So I always like to err on the side of catching it early and dealing with it then. But then I also do recognize that part of that being resource strap is the idea that we are called to do a lot of work in a short period of time and we don't always have the people or money we need to make it efficient. So I think being able to reframe some of the things we're already doing in a way that that conversation that we have with a student is also an opportunity to gather intel about an Mm. issue or that meeting that we have um, maybe with trustees or with other departments on campus kind of gets their take on an issue as well. Um, Being able to use the existing time that we have, being able to schedule time for yourself if possible. So taking half an hour at a time where you tend to have dead time in your calendar. Um, For me, it was always Monday mornings and Friday afternoons because students don't want to come meet with you then. So taking like an hour on a Monday morning and saying, all right, this has come up several times in the last couple weeks. How can I address it in a way that it can get done in a timely fashion? Wherever that time 
time happens to fall for you. I would also say it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time at once. You don't have to have a four-hour block with nothing to do to think about these things. It could be the 15 minutes that you maybe take for a walk mid-afternoon when you're trying to refocus on something else. And taking small steps towards those solutions can also be a viable way to go about it. So it doesn't have to be a massive change all at once right at the start of a semester or right at the end of a year. It can be something that's tweaked a little bit because of feedback you've gotten over the past few weeks. And all of that is considered viable as well. So I say make it small and make it manageable. I think making it too big keeps people from pursuing it. Mm. Do you advocate uh, almost maybe creating a list or, you know, some way to document when something maybe does come across your radar and, and you don't necessarily have the time at that moment to give it to thought? Are you someone who advocates almost creating a you know, a to-do list or something so that when you do have that opportunity to sit back, you, you haven't forgotten about a problem from, from the past or, or a project you're working on or um, something new you're trying to create. Yeah, I say as you notice things, make sure to write them down or document it in some capacity. Take pictures if you're that type of person. Take voice notes if you're that type of person. But finding a way to kind of document what you've noticed, um, it becomes very easy to forget about those things. And I realized that over time, um, it gets easier to kind of ignore it and push it away. So I think if you're coming to into a position and you're new and you notice those things, that's the peak opportunity to do it because you don't know enough to not ask questions and no one can blame you for asking questions because you're new. So being able to kind of feel out at what point you can jump in and ask those questions, but also being that person that gets to attack it and says, I don't know anything about this. What can you tell me about? insert thing that looks a little bit odd or different. And I think even as you do gain tenure in a position and spend more time, looking at things as though you're new can help you see those things. So there might be stuff that three years into a position you didn't know was weird until somebody that was new asked you. Team up with that person, figure out what are they seeing about it, what can your perspective add to it, and what solution can you come to based on both of your um, experiences. Hmm. What are some signs of a team culture that that works this in, that breeds creativity Ooh, in terms of... I love this You know, because I imagine someone who's maybe mid-level or junior um, who maybe doesn't feel like they have... They're empowered to, to take that time or to think of that nature. So as a senior leader, as a director, a VP, you know, what are some some aspects of a creative culture that you can work to build? So I love this question because I talk a lot about creating essential elements of creativity for a person, but I also am very quick to note that those traits map onto environments. And if people and those environments don't have them, then having a whole bunch of people empowered to be creative in environments that aren't allowing them to do that helps nobody. So one of the first ones that I always think of off the top is execution. And for me, execution is the idea of having an idea and feeling empowered to speak it. So I think this thing might work What if we went about it this way and not feeling compelled to hold that in my head? That is in some ways an individual trait, but that's also an environmental trait because Mm -hmm. how you behave when people bring up new ideas, whether they are welcomed, whether they are immediately shot down, whether you are open to finding the resources and putting your support in place to get that thing to happen or you're not, that's going to affect how often people do that. And that goes back to that safe space that we talked a little bit about earlier with your Facebook group, I feel like. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to have an environment where people aren't afraid to say, I think this should look different or what if we tried this a different way? And thinking really long and hard about how do you respond when people bring those ideas in and what were their expectations when they were coming in for that matter? 
because I think about places that I've worked or places my friends and colleagues have worked where they've said we're open to creative ideas, but the way people respond when those ideas come up show that that talk doesn't align with how they're walking, right? So how can you find ways to be that supervisor that says, I want to look more at this idea, or maybe we've never done it this way before, but I want to explore why that is. Or maybe this thing didn't go well last time we tried it, but here's what's different since then and why it makes sense to move forward with it. So thinking more in the affirmative than in maybe not necessarily the negative, but the protective, because that's Mm -hmm. often exactly what that is. It's protecting what stays in place. So thinking about how those mindsets come about and how you can actively counteract those, that creates an environment where people feel okay to bring up those ideas. And I think that's the most important thing to start with. Are people coming to you with ideas? And if they're not, what are you doing that that's the case? Right, right. And looking (laughs) inward, right, to, yeah, to say... When was the last time somebody did come to me with an idea and what was my reaction? Yeah, like what to was my honest idea? reaction and is that why that person isn't coming to me forward anymore? Or is that why people are leaving my team? Or is that why things are changing around us and we're staying the same? So being really reflective and that takes a lot of humility to do, but I think it's also really important to recognize if you're in a position where you need to change, part of that might be why. So I imagine I imagine similarly important is not only breeding that culture of creativity and and creating a culture where where you are empowering your team to come to you with new ideas. It's I would imagine also important to encourage someone who's on your team or department to expand their own horizons, right? And look kind of beyond the scope of of your own campus or, or team. Is can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So one of my favorite tenets of creativity is the idea of broad-mindedness. So thinking as big as possible in as many different places as possible as to where ideas could come from. Um, One of the easiest examples I feel like that comes up in higher ed is the idea of conferences and having to quote-unquote sell getting to go to them. There was an institution I was at where at some point you had to pitch the chief financial officer to let you go to the conference that you wanted to go to. So this is a person that already doesn't really understand student activities, who I then had to explain kind of an offbeat conference idea. So this ended with me explaining or having to write a pitch to a nun in her 70s as to why I should get to go to South by Southwest. I did not get to go. (laughs) um, But the idea that how that process was structured, somebody who had no idea where those ideas would be going or where they would be coming from, then getting to make that decision as to whether it's worth their money or not, is that the best way to go about it? And in a larger sense, I think about what level of trust you need to have in the people that you're working with that A, the time that they're spending and the money that they're spending is going to go towards what they say it's going to go towards, but also recognizing that just because it doesn't come from something you're familiar with doesn't mean there's no value in it. So thinking about how you can fund people for conferences or get them literature that looks a little bit different from what your shelf might look like, or maybe getting subscriptions to podcast networks, or being able to, in a larger sense, sometimes even maybe it's not money and maybe it's not energy, but it's time. So time to take up an extracurricular activity that they could learn something Mm -hmm. from and bring back. And all of those opportunities that think beyond the original scope of what you're doing can pay dividends. I remember talking to a friend who wanted to go to a conference. She also happens to run a nonprofit. And her boss asked, is this for this institution, Sierra, or for name of your nonprofit, Sierra? And I think that that distinction doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think recognizing that anything that you're learning can go to anything that you're doing and having the trust to understand that that person knows what they're doing and isn't just going to waste your money to do that, which, by the way, is far more common than people abusing it. I think that that could then 
pay off in dividends in terms of the information you have to work with and the ideas that get brought to the table when you do have a challenge or a concrete problem that you need to overcome. It's the possible solutions are coming from far more places than you might imagine. See, it's funny because you're talking about conferences or podcast networks, and it it does it occurs to me that what might get my creative juices flowing is not what might get someone else's yeah. creative juices flowing. And I think similarly, we, we talked about taking time mm-hmm. to to give yourself the ability to to think to zoom out and, and think about things creatively. And and you were talking about Monday mornings and and Friday afternoons, but for someone else. It might be at you know late at night or or at lunch or something like that. How, you know, aside, beyond just trying everything, mm-hmm. how do we almost look into ourselves to figure out what does you know energize us? What does get our creative juices flowing? I mean, how do we almost take a look in, inside ourselves to to figure that out? I mean, I think that it's something that's hugely important, and I think this a lot of it goes back to the research that I've done on introversion and paying attention about what energizes you and what takes energy from you. Um, and sometimes that doesn't even take any additional time. It just takes some additional thought with time you're already spending. So I'm the type of person that can get a lot done in the morning and then a lot done late afternoon, early evening, but the middle of the day is not great for me. I don't know why <laughs> that is. That's just kind of how I've always been. But then once I got to an understanding of that, I can then structure my day where the things that I needed to get done and things that needed most of my attention happened when I was at peak energy. And things that took me less energy or maybe needed a little bit less from me happened in the middle of the day. Um, So being able to be attentive to how your rhythms work and then being able to apply that as much as you can to your schedule can also make a difference. And sometimes that means paying attention to time where you don't need to do anything. Sometimes that trust of being able to get time for somebody is just saying, based on everything that's going on around us, I need half a day just out of the office and I will be better when I come back. Mm -hmm. And having somebody that trusts you to say, all right, we will figure this out for this four hours, because that's really all that is. We can figure it out for four hours if you will be better when you come back. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because in a way, I don't see that in higher education. This is a... An industry where working from home is frowned upon, where if you think you need to take, you know, a few hours off, like that's PTO or it's sick time and, and work. They're like, it'll cost done. you. And I was like, should it? Right. Should it cost you? Right. I, th- I don't think it should. Yeah. Is it, are we just reliant on senior leaders that get it uh, or, or people rising up into those positions who are maybe catching on to that now and, and will eventually bring that into their own teams? Why is, in your opinion, you, you've talked to so many more people about this than I have. I mean, why are we stuck in that mindset of only only recognizing contributions when you're sitting at your desk or or at an event? I mean, it's a good question. And I don't know that I have a great answer for it because I think Higher ed is definitely struggling with it, but a lot of other industries aren't. And it's interesting because the way that it's covered um, from like a press and media perspective, it makes it seem like everybody else has figured it out. And I don't <laughs> think that that's true. But what I do think is that as more people start to see the benefit of it, and not just that, oh, this company's doing this, but here's the benefit they're getting from doing this, you can start to have a different conversation. So as you do have leaders in positions that are letting people do that, and the people who benefit from it can talk about what it has given them and what it's given their work and how 
it's impacted fellow staff, how it's impacted students, how it's impacted the bottom line for the institution, because those things will happen. I think the more we talk about that, the easier it then gets for someone to say, all right, maybe we could do it a little bit differently. Because right now, I think a lot of what's keeping us that way is inertia. The fact that what we're doing, quote unquote, isn't broke, but it might be. Mm -hmm. And once you see someone who has fixed it and they're adamant about how well that situation's been fixed and their students can kind of see the benefit of it, then you start to have different conversations. Mm. Well, I'm on my follow end of the day. So this is peak energy for you, but even still, I feel like I've tapped into that energy enough uh, for today. I'm glad. I feel good. Thank you so much for for closing us out with a bang and joining the hashtag High Red Podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. This has been fun. Uh, Before we let you go, a couple housekeeping matters that we always ask our guests. Uh, First and foremost, for those listening who undoubtedly want to learn more about you and everything you've talked about today, where can listeners find you online? So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, under my name, Ama Marfo. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Ama Marfo, all one word, and at amamarfo.com. All of the booking information. So, should any of this seem like it would be valuable to your staff or your students, all of the details for booking me are there. Um, I also work with Fun Enterprises, which is a, a novelty agency that also books speakers, and my information's on there as well. So all of those places you can find me. I think I am best on Twitter and Instagram, but I will let you be the judge of that. Always excited about a fellow Twitter power user. It's the best network, despite what anyone says. Um, And of course, each week on the show, we ask our guests to give a social shout out to a colleague or individual that deserves more recognition of their work. Uh, I've been told this is often the hardest question that I ask in a given show, but I feel like I've asked you a lot of hard (laughs) questions today and you've rocked them all. So uh, the floor is yours and I can't wait to hear who you have in mind. So I will say, as I looked over the questions you gave me, I did give this one the most thought and I think that it is validly the hardest question that I had to answer. But I did come up with somebody. Um, Her name is Trish Fontanilla. She previously had done work with Emerson College and now does a lot of freelance work in the area of community management. But she is a wonderfully giving person and she's very smart, really good connector of people. And I think that she ultimately has found time and again ways to make people better and I think that she's doing a lot of cool stuff on social some of what she does is volunteering on a regular basis being very open about where she volunteers Um, actually just recently got an award for volunteerism in the Boston area and she also is really good about spreading work opportunities so Mm. she is active on the hashtag work Wednesday and is really good about sharing openings in the startup community and in the educational community for people who are looking for work to connect with people who have it. So she's just a very good and attentive person around bringing people together, both in formal communities and in informal communities. And she is on Twitter and Instagram at at Trish of the Trade. And she's fantastic. That's awesome. She's also a wonderful foodie (laughs) and takes some of the only good food pictures on Instagram. I feel (laughs) so comfortable saying that because she crushes it. Awesome. Well, go follow Trish. Please go follow Amma because she is incredible. Thank you. Amma, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you to everyone who has listened to season two. This has been an awesome ride here as we've gone through uh, the calendar year exploring all the amazing creative things that people are doing on their campus. 
Uh, we'll be back in a few months as we ourselves take a step back and try to get creative about how we can improve the show. Uh, and to that in mind, if you have thoughts about what you like, what you think we can do better, please always reach out. Find me on Twitter at Stephen App. Email me, sap at ecityinteractive.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you in a few months.